All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday service. Thank you, Paul, for sharing that testimony. Hopefully, you one day continue practicing what was so life-giving to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, glad you could join us today. We're going through a series where we don't want it just to be uh, things in theory, but we want it to be real life. And so we're going to continue on our sermon series. And our passage comes from the Gospel of Luke. And if you have your programs, your Bibles, we could all take that out to Luke chapter 5. And at our church, one thing that we do is when we read our Bibles, we believe God is alive and he speaks. And so can we all rise as we read scripture together? So Luke chapter 5, we're going to read from verses 27 all the way to verse 32. So verse 27 reads, After this, he, referring to Jesus, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the reading of God's word. Can I pray for us and we'll begin our time? Lord, would you bless our Sunday service today as we gather as your church? Would your spirit move? And I just pray that you could speak to us through your word and looking at the life of Christ and how, O Lord, you call us to use that as a template for our life. So bless, O Lord, this time, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may please be seated. So my wife and I, we usually have similar taste in food. It's not too much of the bait of where we go to eat, but there is one restaurant that we have two very different opinions on. It's Olive Garden. Man, my wife hates Olive Garden, like with a passion. Like she thinks it's like cheap Italian food. She does not like it at all. But me, I love Olive Garden. Like if our church went to Olive Garden every Sunday, I am there. Like I love the garlic bread that's unlimited, the salad that you can fill up all the time, the variety of pasta, like what's there not to like? So we kind of bicker about that all the time. But there is one thing about Olive Garden that I do not like, and it's the marketing. Uh, do you guys know what Olive Garden's, their, their slogan is? Uh, their slogan is this, when you're here, you're a family. And I don't like it because I'm like, dude, who buys that? Like, when I go to Olive Garden, I have, like, an Italian family with y'all. Like, that doesn't really make sense to me. Like, that's such a silly slogan, and I don't like it. But the reason why I believe Olive Garden, the, the marketers, they, they brand themselves that way is because they know it touches a nerve. They know a lot of us, we want to belong somewhere. And the reason why I think that's really relevant to us is because, if we're honest, uh, a lot of us, uh, we're pretty lonely. It's a lonely time. Uh, One definition I heard of loneliness that I thought was really helpful is loneliness, it's the gap between the level of connectedness you want and what you actually have. So you're lonely to the extent of the gap of what you want and what you actually have when it comes to company. And if you feel this gap in your life where you feel like, I sense something, I have friends and so forth, but there is a loneliness that's there and you feel that gap, uh, just know you're not alone. Uh, A lot of people, this is a common issue. Uh, 36% nationally in the U.S. are not just lonely, kind of, but they are seriously lonely, like depressingly loathing. 36%. That's one-fourth of this room you could bank on as probably depressingly lonely. 51% of young moms with young children are lonely. That means half the moms in this room could use a friend, 
because it's a lonely season watching uh, your children. 61% of singles feel lonely. That means six out of 10 people, they're alone when they're single. Uh, In fact, in 2021, U.S. health officials, they declared loneliness as a public health crisis, the same scale as uh, obesity, the same scale as prescription drug abuse. They say loneliness is an epidemic of that scale. In the New York Times, there's an article titled How Loneliness is Damaging Our Health, and they argue that the reason why this is a public health issue isn't just because they're sensitive about relationships and people just feeling emotionally alone, but it actually causes physical damage. Neuroscientists, they actually argue that the brain understands that you are most safe when you're around people because there is safety in numbers, and so when you don't have people around you, your brain interprets that as there's something actually wrong with the situation that you are in, so what ends up happening is your brain, the amygdala, it releases stress hormones because this isn't right. And the stress hormones causes your heart rate to your heart rate to raise. It causes your blood pressure to rise. And then all these inflammatory cells get produced to battle this bacteria that's actually not there because there's nothing physical going on. It's just something that you're experiencing in the environment. And so because of that, you're actually getting physically jacked up from loneliness. That's why people who are lonely, they experience depression. It's not just a mental thing, but it's a physical thing that happens when you're lonely. You're experiencing anxiety. You experience heart disease. You experience substance abuse. And it's without all the studies agreed, higher mortality rates, it's all common because of people who are alone. And this isn't just nationally. It's not just happening out there. But I talk to y'all, and I know a lot of us here, if we're really honest, we're kind of lonely. We, we have a... We have issues in our life, we have problems going on, but you know, the, the issues that we experience, it's really tough because we, deep down inside, we just don't really have a, the bonds that we want to have, and whenever people tell me they feel alone, there's like this really mean side of me in the back of my head that I want to tell them, it gets worse. It gets worse. You guys see that Instagram, it went viral, where it showed all these charts of like the time you spend with people and so forth. It was so interesting and so also depressing because there's one chart that says the time spent with your family, over time as you get older, it, it decreases. You will, you will spend less and less time with your family as you get older and older. Same with your friends. The more time, the, more old, the older you get, the less and less time you will spend with your friends. It all decreases. But you know what increases as you get older? One thing. Loneliness. You will spend less and less time with people as you get older and older. That's just the way life goes. That's what naturally happens. And a lot of us, you know, we already talked about we're tired. We're weary from work, from kids, from busyness. And the worst part about that, though, isn't just the fact that you're tired, but you're tired alone. There's not really people around you, at least to the extent that you want them to be around you. In the sermon series that we've been going through, we've been talking about how Jesus, he invites those who are tired those who are weary, to adopt his practices because he promises to give us rest? And the question is, is there a practice that can help us with this struggle of feeling alone in life? And I'd argue, yes, there is, a very powerful one. And that's the practice of hospitality. Hospitality. Hospitality, I would argue, it's very similar to the practice of Sabbath, where just like Sabbath, if you practice it, it's a very life-giving practice. Silence and solitude, Bible reading, prayer, that takes time to actually feel the rest it provides. But I'd argue Sabbath, you kind of feel it right away, a day where you just turn off, take a break, take a rest. But hospitality, I'd argue, if you practice it, it is so life-giving right away, you feel it immediately. So it's very similar to Sabbath in that way. 
But it's also similar to Sabbath where a lot of us think we're practicing hospitality, but you're really not. A lot of us, we think, oh yeah, I hang out with my friends, we go go out, we kind of, you know, they come over to my house and so forth. And again, that's awesome. That is not hospitality. At least not the way that Jesus describes hospitality. So today what we're going to look at is this idea of, well, what is hospitality? Why do we need to practice hospitality? And how do we actually do it? So we're going to look at three things. Number one is the power in hospitality. Second, the need for hospitality. And lastly, the practice of hospitality. So the power, the need, and the practice. First, the power in hospitality. The word hospitality, it comes, it's this Greek phrase, it's called philozenia. And philozenia, this, if you break it down, philo, like the city of love, Philadelphia, it means love. Xenia is the stranger. Combine that together, it is the love of the stranger. That's what hospitality means. I like how uh, Rosario Butterfield, the way she defines a very powerful definition of hospitality. She says, quote, hospitality, it is the practice of turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. That's what hospitality is. And we actually see that this practice of hospitality, it's throughout the story of Scripture. It's in the Old Testament, it's all over the New Testament, and it's all over Jesus' life. Luke chapter 5, the passage we just looked at. We see Jesus, he's going around inviting different people to come follow him, and at the passage that we read, he invites the ultimate stranger, the ultimate outsider to come and follow him. Look what again what it says in verse 27 and 28 in your programs again. This is Jesus says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and leaving everything he rose and followed him. Now, if you grew up in the church, you know that tax collectors are not necessarily good people back in the day. They were Jewish people who worked for Rome, and they would tax people all the time, and they would swindle them because if the tax was 10%, they could charge you 20%, and there's nothing you could do about it. So everybody hated tax collectors. They're the worst. They were grouped with thieves and with prostitutes. They're the lowest of the low. Now, today, we don't really have a modern equivalent of that, so don't think uh, your accountant friends, you're the tax collectors. That's not uh, the, the, the imagery that's there. Think of tax collectors as the people who get canceled in society today. The people who, like, you, if you follow them on Instagram, like, dude, you're going to get canceled because they are not people you're supposed to follow. So these are people who we group with, like, they're like the, the white nationalists, the racists, uh, the, the, the pedophilers, the rapists. That's, that's the type of people who are like, oh my gosh, society would totally stay away from them. And that's what tax collectors were. They were, like, in that category. They were canceled by society. But Jesus, not only does he invite this tax collector, this canceled person, to come follow him, but Jesus has the audacity to go and eat with him. Look what it says in verse 29 and 30. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the Pharisees are freaking out here. Not because these guys are following Jesus, but that Jesus is eating with them. Like, how could you do this, Jesus? And when we read this, we go, well, what's the big deal? You're just eating. We don't really see the, the problem with that. But just know, back then, very big deal. Uh, the best analogy I could give is, you remember that movie Mean Girls? When uh, Regina George, she, she, Lindsay Lohan comes, and they're going to the cafeteria. And Regina George is like, hey, okay, so that table there, that's the jocks. That table there, Asian nerds. That table there, cheerleaders. And here's the plastics. And she's giving her this whole rundown of the different tables you eat at because she knows that where and who you eat with determines your social status. Your association is seen in who you share a table with. 
That's, how, that's the whole, one of the premises of Mean Girls. And that's exactly how it was back in the first century. There's this idea of table fellowship, where who you eat with, it brings people together or it separates you from people. It lets you know who's in and who's out of your social circle. Do you notice in the Old Testament, when you read the Torah, there's all these Old Testament laws, and a lot of them are kind of these weird food laws, like what not to eat. And God tells Israel, don't eat this, don't eat this. And there's a lot of debate about like, why those particular foods, but there is no debate about one reason why God gives these commands. It's because there are certain meals and foods, there are certain people that eat this that God does not want Israel to eat with, and that's the Canaanites. The Canaanites ate this food, and so when God tells Israel, don't eat this because you are a holy nation meant to be set apart, it would make sure that the Canaanites and the Israelites, they were set apart. And so as one author puts it, he says it like this, quote, It will be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean in the first century of our era. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person, it had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. So that's the context. And that's why the Pharisees are freaking out. So now we have to go back to, well, then why is Jesus doing this? Jesus is a pious Jew. He's a rabbi. So why, knowing these food laws, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And to answer this, we have to to realize one thing, is that Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, he is always eating with people. If you're a foodie, you should read the Gospel of Luke. Food is everywhere in this Gospel. In fact, Jesus and food appear together 50 times throughout Luke. Uh, If you just do a quick survey in every chapter, you'll just see that in the Gospel of Luke, food is everywhere. Luke 7, Jesus, while he's anointed, he's eating. Luke 9, he feeds 5,000 people to eat. Luke 10, he's eating with Martha and Mary in their house. Luke 11, he condemns the Pharisees while eating a meal. Luke 14, Jesus eats and he urges them to invite the poor to eat. Luke 19, he goes, Zacchaeus, I must go to your house to eat. Luke 22, he, before he goes to the cross, they eat the Last Supper. And Luke 24, when Jesus rises, what's, what does he do with the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Let's eat. As one author put it, he says, quote, In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. Jesus was a foodie. Why? Why are meals so prominent in Jesus' ministry? And I love with one author, his name is Tim Chester. He wrote this great book called Meal with Jesus, and he makes a great observation. Do you guys know what Jesus' favorite self-title is? Like what he calls himself? Like There's many terms, Messiah, Christ, but do you know what his favorite title is for himself? Anyone guess? Not Rashi. Son of man. Jesus, he always calls himself the son of man. That's a, a figure, it's a term that comes from the book of Daniel where it prophesies about this mysterious figure called the son of man who will come and inherit authority for over the nations. In the Gospel of Luke, there are two places where Jesus describes what the Son of Man came to do. There's only two places where he defines what the Son of Man, what he has come to do in this world. And they come from Luke 19 and Luke 7. In Luke 19, verse 10, this is what he says. The Son of Man came to seek 
and to save the lost. Which, you know, if you grew up in the church, you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's what you came to do. Okay, I've heard that before. But you know what the second place it says, what Jesus describes the Son of Man doing? Luke 7. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Oh, that's weird. That first one sounds very churchy and, and relatable. But that second one, like, what in the world? Why are those the two statements that Jesus makes to define what the Son of Man does? And I love what Chester says. He says this first one here, what it actually is doing is it's describing the mission. This is what Jesus did. This is what he came to do. But the second one, eating and drinking, this is the method, how Jesus does it. This is what the Son of Man does. He came to seek and save the lost, and he does it by eating and drinking with them. Because before, while Israel, they were separated from the nations, through Christ, a new time has come where there's no longer a separation, but there's an invitation to the nations. And Jesus invites them to show that there is fellowship and reconciliation with God, not just by his preaching, not just by his miracles, but by eating and by drinking with them. And the reason why Jesus does this is because food and sharing a meal, there is this unique power that it has to turn strangers to neighbors and neighbors into family. And I'd actually say today, we, get it, we actually know that's true. You ever see this meme on the internet before, Sad Keanu? This Keanu Reeves, I'm not sure if you can see it. It's, it's called Sad Keanu Reeves. And the reason is because he looks sad. Like, what's, what's Keanu Reeves doing? And it's sad because he's, you know, he's sitting by himself. What is he thinking? But you know what makes it really sad is notice what's in his hand. It's a sandwich. He's eating by himself. And I, that's actually what contributes to the sadness. It's like, wow, you're, that's really sad, someone eating by themselves. I mean, have you ever been to like a nice steak restaurant and you're eating with your friends and there's like this person just by themselves drinking wine, eating steak, and they're all alone? It's kind of weird because it's almost like food is not meant to be eaten alone. To contrast that, have you ever shared a meal with somebody you didn't know that well? I know for me, my neighbor and I, we were always cool. I've mentioned my neighbors a couple of times, but we were always cool where I'd drive home, I'd see him, wave hello, go inside my garage. You know, that's just my life. Sometimes I come outside because my son wants to come outside and his son is outside, so they'll talk. And when my kids are playing with his kids, I'll go up and we do small talk. And that was kind of the extent of our relationship. We're really cool. He's super nice. But one day I remember we actually invited, hey, we should eat together. And so we actually got a meal and we ate together. And man, something about that where after we ate, like our relationship just kind of leveled up, where now when I come home and I see him from, you know, coming home into my garage, I say hello, but I come out of my car and I'll talk to him. Say, hey, what's up, man? How's your day? Now when our kids are playing together, we'll talk, and even when the kids go inside, we still talk. It's almost like food just somehow enhanced our relationship and deepened it because that's what the nature of food is. Tim Chester, again, he says it like this, quote, food, it connects. This is why eating and drinking, they were so important in the mission of Jesus. Meals are more than food. They're social occasions. They represent friendship, community, and welcome. Let's not reduce church and mission to meals, but meals should be an integral and significant part of our shared life. And that begs the question, who do you eat with? Do you know who you eat with regularly? You know, historically, people always ate with people. You wake up with your family, you eat a meal with your family, you eat with your tribe, that's always the way it is. We are the first people in history where the majority of us, we eat most of our meals alone. You eat it in the car, you eat it in front of your computer, you eat it at work. 
And the reason why we do this is because we're budgeting, we're trying to save money, or we're pressed for time, we're busy. But as a result, we're all, for some reason, kind of lonely. I'm not saying that you should, therefore, share a meal with every, every single chance you get. All the introverts, we all freak out if we hear that. But consider what eating alone does to you. It's doing something to you. Because this is not supposed to be an activity that we do by ourselves. And Jesus, don't get me wrong, he spent plenty of time alone. He practiced science and solitude. He prayed. But he made it a point, a habit, to regularly practice hospitality by eating with people. It's what makes you human. And that leads to the second point, which is the need for this. The need for hospitality. Why do we need this in our lives? And I argue the reason why is because hospitality it has the potential to change and heal people. It brings healing. Luke chapter 5, after Jesus is eating with all the tax collectors and the Pharisees go, how could you be eating with these people? Do you notice what Jesus' response is? Look again at verses 31 to 32. Look what Jesus says. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. While many of us who grew up in the church, you might be familiar with this verse. You're not familiar with the context. A lot of people are sick. They need a physician. So what does Jesus do? I must eat with them. I must share a meal with them. And the reason why is because hospitality, it does not just have the power to connect people, but it provides space for healing. Normally in life, all of us, we are always in a rush. We're always in the move. We're always in the next meeting, the next activity, the next assignment, the next due date that's going there. But do you notice when you have to pause and eat, you just stop doing what you're doing? It's the one moment you are forced to drop the computer, the one moment you are forced to get away and slow things down. Everything slows down in a meal. And especially if you invite somebody, that is this like carved out space where you don't go to someone's house bringing your laptop. Who does that? When you go and get a meal with somebody, it's this dedicated time where you come, you sit at a table, they're cooking, you're doing small talk, you're eating, you're washing the dishes, and you're just there together in that space where everything slows down. And the reason why this is so helpful is because you are providing a context for people when you open your home this way, for people to feel loved, for people to feel welcomed, to be dignified, and where the spirit can really move to heal. This is where actually the concept of hospitals came from. You know the word hospital, it's the same etymology as hospitality, because hospitals are supposed to do the same thing that hospitality does, which is a place where you go to get healing, to be restored, And that's why when we practice hospitality, especially in our homes, our homes become this potential source of healing and restoration for people. This happens at a horizontal level with people, and also happens at a vertical level. Horizontally, I remember a single friend of mine, she used to always hang out with this one family, which was really strange because she was like 25, and this family, they were like 40, and they had three kids. I'm like, why are you guys hanging out? Like, there is no reason for you to want to spend time with each other. And I remember one time I talked to her, and she actually shared with me that she grew up in a very broken household, and she never, she, so she always grew up believing, like, you, you, you shouldn't get married because you can't be happy in marriage. Like, marriage is a terrible thing. But when she went to eat with this family, she was so intrigued because this family, they seemed happy. And she had never seen that in her life. And I realized like, that kind of really deconstructed what she experienced and what she thought was true because, as I mentioned in the past, we are hurt at the deepest level by relationships, but you are also healed 
at the deepest level through relationships. And that's what was going on with her. This deep pain that was just kind of there through this exposure of people, a lot of healing was taking place at a horizontal level. This also happens at a vertical level where there's a type of healing that takes place when we meet with people. There's a professor, you might have heard of her, some of you. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She is a professor at Syracuse, or she was. She was an English professor. She was part of the LGBTQ community, and her specialization was in queer theory. So her, that was like her jam. Uh, so she, she hated Christians. She hated the church, and she wrote this op-ed once talking about how sexuality in, in a conservative framework, there's something really broken and wrong with it. And when she wrote this op op-ed and it was sent to her town, there's actually, a, she got a response from a Christian pastor, a local church pastor. And it wasn't anything mean, he just had like a different opinion, and then they had a little bit of correspondence, and he actually invited her, hey, we should meet up sometime. And so, to the surprise, she actually took him up on his offer, and she drove to meet him, and she was ready, she was like ready for him to like debate him, for him to like evangelize to him, but she was super surprised when she came to his house, and all that was waiting for him was a meal with him and his family. Him and his wife just said, hey, let's eat together. They ate. They got to know her. They asked her a bunch of questions. They touched upon the op-ed and so forth, but it was mainly just eating and getting to know her. And she talks about how after that conversation, it was just really fascinating. She was like, wow, this person who I stands for everything I hate, that was a very interesting thing that just transpired. We just talked and we just ate. And he invited her, hey, if you want to join us again, come again next week. And she did. She joined them again. They ate, they talked, they talked, their talks got even deeper and deeper. He said, hey, you know, if you want to know more about this stuff that I believe, you should come to our Bible study. She came to a Bible study. She eventually came to his church. Many years later, now to this day, she's a Christian. She's a Christian. She's married to a Reformed pastor, which is really weird. Like, whoa, she's now a pastor's wife. She's a foster parent. She runs a foster home. And she wrote a book, her first book, or her second book, actually, it's on hospitality. And the reason why she wrote about hospitality is because she's passionate about this, because she knew she would have never, ever, ever considered following Jesus if she just came to church. It was through this shared meal with this, with this couple that opened their homes and opened their lives that she actually got to see the warmth and the love that she's been hearing Christians talk about all the time. And it grieves her because she says that, you know, the problem with a lot of churches is the LGBT community, the reason why a lot of people gravitate towards that community is because they're way more hospitable than the people in the church. They're way more open to opening their homes versus the church we just kind of gather in large groups. And so she, she really believes that we have to change that. And this is really relevant to us because I think for a lot of us here, when you think about, especially if you grew up in the church, you want to spread the gospel and advance the kingdom. Like, how do you do that? We think evangelism. We think I must preach the gospel. We think we must go up to people and be like, hey, how are you doing? By the way, if you were to die today, where do you think you'll go? And that's the pressure we kind of feel. And nobody feels comfortable doing that because it feels very sales pitchy. Like I'm trying to sell you something as a Christian. But we see Jesus, he, it seems like he does that in the Bible. And so because of that, we feel like we have to do it this way and nobody does it. Nobody does this. Everyone shares with me, it's so hard to share the gospel with people. I'm like, yeah, if that's how you're supposed to share it, no wonder it's hard. Nobody wants to do that. It feels weird. But didn't Jesus do that? And I love what one author, he mentions, you know, if you actually look at what Jesus does in the gospels, it's really fascinating. He doesn't do that with everybody. When he meets religious people, the Pharisees, people who grew up in, temp- in temple and so forth, he grabs them all together and he goes, let me preach you a message. And he does the preachy thing. But when he meets tax collectors, prostitutes, people who are so far away from God, he eats with them. He invites them to a meal. He asks them questions. He's curious about them. As Tim Chester writes, he says, quote, Jesus, he didn't run projects. 
establish ministries, create programs or put on events. He ate meals. It's not that meals save people. People are saved through the gospel message. But meals will create natural opportunities to share that message in a context that resonates powerfully with what you are saying. And when you understand the power and the need for hospitality, you understand why in the early church, why so many people began to follow Jesus. You know, in the early church, whenever they would gather, there's a unique description that's given throughout the book of Acts that we don't really notice, but every time they gather, they're always not just worshiping, but eating all the time. For example, Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. It describes the food. Of all the things to describe about the church, it's what they ate. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are 40 miracles that take place in the book of Acts. 39 of them take place outside of church walls. It's all happening in homes. It's all happening because they're all meeting together in separate places. Throughout the New Testament, letters that were given to followers of Jesus, they were constantly exhorted to practice hospitality. For example, Hebrews 13, verse 1 and 2, it writes, Let brotherly love continue. How? Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's how you love people. Share a meal and open your homes to them. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, descriptions of an elder. You know what one of the descriptions are? One of the mandatory descriptions of a leader in the church? Be hospitable. Make sure they are hospitable to people. In fact, one, one scholar says the early church had many struggles, but loneliness was not one of them. They were not lonely. And this is why, even though the early church, they had no church building, nobody went to church together like this, they did not have social media, they did not have celebrity pastors, and yet the church spread like wildfire. Why? Because Christians opened their homes. They opened their houses. They regularly ate together. And at one point, within 100 years, half the Roman Empire were all part of a Christian house. Half the Roman Empire was regularly eating with a Christian in their household. Because people changed through these meals. People bonded through these meals. And space was created for the Spirit to move in the hearts of people as they shared these meals. Some of you know this story of mine, but I became a Christian towards the end of college. So I was like in my 20s or so. And I always tell people, it was not because of people evangelizing to me. It was in spite of that. It was not because of church services I went to. I could care less about the church services at that time. It was not the parachurch campus ministries that I went to. Those were weird to me. You know what actually changed me and made me curious? When people opened their apartments to me. They would invite me, say, hey, want to come over? They'd get me a meal. And as I'm sitting there just eating with these people who live a totally different lifestyle than me, believe in totally different things than me, I just observed them. Like, this is interesting, the things they talk about, their values. It wasn't taught to me, but it was just kind of caught. I just kind of catched it a lot. And it made me really curious. It made me fascinated. And over time, I realized, looking back, these meals, they didn't just bond me to other Christians, but it just provided space for God to work in my life. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were a community, if our church was a community where we did not just gather together on Sundays like this, but throughout the week, we just opened our homes. You just saw an Insta story, different people. that You're like, whoa, these two people are hanging out? Just different people in the same community opening homes to one another. You know what would happen if that happens? I'll tell you what happens. We see it in the Bible. The church comes alive. The church becomes revitalized. 
Because the church comes alive when the church, you're not just gathered around the stage like this, like I've talked about before, but when you're around tables, breaking bread, sharing life, showing love to people who you would otherwise never need to show love to except that you want to practice the love of Christ to them. In other words, you'll begin to look a lot more like Jesus and people will be very fascinated by that. And that leads to the last point, which is, well, how do we do this? How do we practice hospitality? What does it look like today to do this? And I would argue that there's many ways to do it, but there's at least three elements you need in order for that to really maximize what hospitality is. And, here, and the three elements are food, guests, and conversations. Okay, first is food. The first thing you need is food. We practice hospitality when we share a meal with somebody else. Some of us think you're being hospitable when you invite people to come over and you play Call of Duty the entire time. Or you invite a parent over and your kid's going to play date at a playground and that's still, that's, you're being hospitable because you're opening your home and so forth. And again, all good. That's cool. But notice that every time Jesus in the Gospels, when he would spend time in people's homes, he always ate. There's always food because there is something unique about food that makes people put their guards down. There's something about food that like bonds us together. There's something about food that like refreshes us. And I, and I like what one person says. Where he says his theory is that the reason why that happens is when you eat food, you're no longer a student in that moment. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You're not even a parent in that moment. You're just human with visceral needs. You're hungry. And you're eating together. And in that vulnerable moment, you are bonding in a unique way that you can't really bond in any other way. Have you ever gone to a group gathering where there's food present and there's not food present? You should try it. Go, your community groups. Some of you, I know you meet and you do not eat together. And some of you, you meet and you eat together. I promise you, big difference. I was once part of a community group before. We did not eat and man, you draw. And by the way, if you know what community groups are, it's like when we open our homes and our church meets midweek. When you come to someone's house, you come like kind of feeling weird because you're tired from work. You're stressed out. You feel like this weird apprehension because all these people are here and you kind of feel like, you know, a little bit tight. And you try to connect through small talk and small talk only takes you so far. And then the leader goes, well, let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about the sermon. You sit in a circle and you start talking and it's kind of awkward. And the group meeting ends and you go, well, that was kind of awkward. I guess I have weird people in my group or maybe the sermon was weird and that why, just something is off about that. Versus when you meet, and you come, and you're tired, and you have all this weird apprehension, and all of a sudden, the person comes and goes, the food is here. Everyone starts clapping, like, "Woo! the food is here. We eat, and as you're eating, everyone's guard is slowly going down. Weird conversations come up that you would never imagine coming up as you're sharing food. And when that happens after we're done, then we come together, and the vibes are so good. The vibes are so good. We're ready to talk. Like, we're ready to share. And the reason why it's not because of the personnel, it's not because of the sermons, because we shared a meal together. It has the power to really bond and change people. If you practice hospitality, if you want to practice it, include a, include a meal. Nothing fancy. There's just something power, powerful about food. If you're a community group and you're a meeting and you're not having food, do consider having food. I know some of community groups, you meet late, 7.30. I get it. We meet late too. We make everyone wait because we want to make a meaningful three hours and an awkward three hours of being time, having time together. Something about food just binds you together. Hospitality and food are part of our one-on-one. Bring food into hospitality. Two, you just not only need food, but to have hospitality, you must have guests. 
We practice hospitality when we share a meal. Not friends, guests. Some of you think you are practicing hospitality because you open your home all the time to your friends, your college friends, your friends you'd hang out any other day. We have Friendsgiving where people come over, we make meals, we're being hospitable. By the way, that's awesome. Dude, we should have friends. It's healthy to have friends. But just know that's not hospitality. That is not hospitality. Hospitality is the love of the stranger. Philoxenia. If you only have friends coming into your home, you are practicing the opposite. You're practicing xenophobia, the fear of the stranger. That's what's happening. And for a lot of us, if that's what happens in the church, when the community, when all of us here, the only people we spend all of our time with is with close friends, we are no longer a church. We are a social club. We are an occasion for you to hang out with your friends. That's what the church is when the church is only spending time with each other. And you know what happens when a church is like that? The church loses its vibrancy. A lot of you know these small churches that are just dead. They are dead. They still meet. They still worship, but the spirit is gone. You know why? Not because of wrong doctrine. Not because the pastor is preaching weird stuff. It's because the people, they just stick close to their friends. There's no love going on, at least the Christ-like love that's taking place. And so again, I'm not saying don't hang out with friends. The majority of your time, you should hang out with friends. It's life-giving hanging out with friends. But don't confuse that with hospitality. Let there be a rhythm where the only people stepping into your household, it's not just the familiar, but it's even guests, people who you want to turn from strangers to neighbors and neighbors into family, because that's what it's for. We must have guests if we want to practice hospitality. But lastly, to practice hospitality, not just food, not just guests, conversations. To practice hospitality, engaging in meaningful conversations. I remember one time my wife and I, we invited these two postgraduates to come to our, our house to eat. Man, I wish I could name them, but I'm not going to name them. But it was so funny because they came over, we took them this meal, and they came. You know, it's kind of weird in the beginning because you're new and it's like the apprehension. And they sat down, they ate, and as soon as we finished eating, my wife and I were thinking, what should we do now? And they, they're like, well, thank you so much for the meal. They stood up and they bounced. And my wife and I, after they left, we just started laughing. We're like, dude, that's hilarious. Like, they just took our food and bounced. <laughs> and again, nothing wrong with that. Not, didn't mind it at all. Definitely wasn't life-giving. Wasn't like, well, that was fun. He didn't feel that at all. Because hospitality, it involves conversation. It involves talking to people. Because while food puts your guard down, conversation brings you close. You want to know how to have the best conversation? What's the, what do you even talk about? Be curious about each other. Be curious. The worst conversations to have with people is when you sit down and one person is just telling, them, telling you about themselves, the other person is telling you about themselves, and you're just telling each other about yourselves. It's so boring. Can you just run out of things to talk about? You know what the best conversations are? Hey, I'm really curious about you. How did you guys get together? Hey, how did you move to California? Were you always living here? Hey, what's, what, what movies do you guys like to watch? Like, what do you do for fun? Hey, how'd you come to our church? Hey, why are you doing that job that you're doing? How did you get to that major? Man, when you're curious about the other person, because I, I kid you not, people are fascinating. There's some like, weird people in our church. Like, they're really weird in a very fascinating way. I'm like, wow, you think that that's how everyone thinks. Like, I'm just really fascinated. And a lot of us here, we're, we're not curious enough about one another. That's why the conversations are bland. But when you're curious and you're just asking these questions... That's when just life starts to happen over a meal. 
I know for some of you here, when you think about hospitality, food, guests, conversations, it's very natural for you. Some of you are already doing it, dude. Bless your soul. You are building up the church in ways that you don't even realize. A lot of you are doing it through community groups. Dude, bless your souls. Thank you so much for opening your homes. Uh, Just know parents. I know a lot of you feel guilty. How do I get involved in church? I feel so stuck with the kids here on Sundays. It's so hard, and I get it. It's a tough season. But even though this is a uniquely tough season to get involved in the church on Sundays, this is prime season to open your home to people. This is prime season for you to welcome people. And I tell you, what, like parents, we think it's a lot more work to invite people. Man, as someone who hosts people all the time, I love having people over. Free childcare. It's awesome. You, the, the kids, they're just meeting different people. And it's just a blessing seeing the kids being exposed to different people. This is prime time for them. And just know for me personally, I know hospitality might come naturally to some of you. It does not come naturally to me at all. I am an INFJ, Enneagram 5. I am fine being in a cave by myself. If I was on Castaway, I'd have no problem being lost in the island. It's all good. I just need me, and I'm fine. But what ended up happening was my wife and I, we try to make a rhythm where we host about three to four different people a month. And some of it's like friends, and some of it's like people who we kind of know, but we want to get to know better. And I find myself not just, I feel like we're blessing people because we're feeding them a lot, but I feel like, man, as an INFJ, Enneagram 5, I am shocked how blessed I am. Like, I feel alive when I'm hosting people. These, like, new relationships I'm forging, just meeting and being curious about people, learning new things. It's very fascinating how this super introverted guy, I feel like there's something that's happening as I meet, not just my friends, but new faces, getting to know them. I feel like I'm becoming almost human, more human. I feel like it's becoming more like Jesus. And I feel like Jesus wants us to be like that too. And so before I close, let me just answer a couple of quick objections and then just exhort us with a practice. A lot of you, you hear this, you go, this sounds wonderful, but you have some legit objections that make it hard. For some of you, as, I, as I'm talking about this, you're like, that sounds wonderful, but man, that sounds tiring. That sounds really stressful to host people. And the reason why it sounds so tiring is because you imagine, you remember your parents, what they would do when they hosted people. Oh my gosh, they would clean the entire house. The only time you bust out the fine china and you have like this show that takes place, it is just exhausting. And just know if that's you, if you are super stressed out hosting people, you are confusing entertainment with hospitality. It is very tiring to entertain people. It is very stressful. Hospitality is also tiring, but it's not as stressful. You know why? Because when you entertain people, you are performing. You're showing off your best version, the fake you, the you you want people to really accept and to be understood. Versus the hospitality, you're just serving them. You're not trying to show off. You're just trying to show love. That's what you're doing. Entertainment, it's this event because you do it like maybe once or twice a year. Grand feast, the most awesome food that takes you all day to cook. Versus hospitality, it's just service. It's just a rhythm in life. It's something you do all the time. It's okay. Chick-fil-A is all good. It's all good. You don't have to make it so crazy. Honor your guests, but show the real you. It's not a performance. Some of us, when we think about hospitality, this sounds really expensive. It's like, hey, man, do you know, you know it's kind of like food is expensive now, right? I, it's so much easier just to eat leftovers, just to eat with my family, just to eat with my friend, you know, McDonald's, that's all good. And when I hear this objection, it's the same objection I hear from married couples when I encourage married couples, you should eat out together, go on a date night. And the response I get from married couples is, but food is so expensive. I could just eat that corner bakery and make it at home. Like, why do I have to go and pay for that? And I always tell married couples, you're not paying for the food, you're paying for the marriage. 
You're paying to invest in the relationship. Same with hospitality. You're not paying for the food. You are paying for the forging relationships that you are creating through the food. Some of you who are younger, you don't have a home. You don't have a house, so how can you practice hospitality? All good. Jesus didn't have a home. And yet he ate with people all the time. Go for coffee with somebody. Go to the source after Sunday and say, hey, let's eat. Let's eat together. Or for some of you, it might be really hard because times are tough. Maybe this is not a season for you to offer hospitality, but it's a season for you to receive hospitality. A lot of you, if you're not part of a community group and you're just kind of eating by yourself all the time, dude, your soul must be so tired. You're a lot more weary than you realize. And it might be a season you need people to really minister to you. Last objection. Uh, You know, I hear what you're saying, but to be honest, I, I like my friends. I just want to be with my friends. I heard someone, there's someone once shared with me, a sister, she was saying, you know, I know I'm supposed to welcome people and our church wants to be a church that welcomes people, but to be honest, I just want to be with my three friends and I'm good. And when I heard her say that, I felt really sad for her. There's a lot of sadness because, you know, there's a reason clicks do not have a positive connotation. There's a reason the plastics, they come off that way because when you are just stuck with your same three or four people, your love becomes so deformed and tribal, and closed-minded, because you're only being, you're only listening to the same people that you share life with. Your love is only limited to the type of people that you want to love, and it becomes, you become this kind of person that other people don't find very lovely, because that's just how you limit your love in that way, and what makes it even worse is that eventually when those people leave, because they do leave, people move away, your close circle of friends are all gone, and you don't know what to do with yourself. You feel pretty lost. And what's most tragic about that is, especially as a church, for us to do that, we are doing something so contrary to the person who we vow and say we are following. Jesus is a savior who did not just turn to people he liked and said, hey, come, I want to eat with you. But as we read in our passage, he is a savior who had a regular rhythm, turning strangers into neighbors and turning neighbors into friends. And he did that even for you. He did that for you. And so to conclude, how do we practice this? Every week, you eat two to three times a day. That's about at least 14 opportunities you have every single week. I'm not saying share a meal with every single one of those. Please don't do that. But who can you share a meal with? A neighbor who you kind of know? A coworker who you're friendly with? Sundays after church? Dude, let that person come eat with us at the source, man. Come eat with us. A community group member? A visitor from church? But can we be a church where it's not just a familiar coming to our homes? It's not just our kids or our families, but it's people who, man, they are brought into my life and God wants me to really practice something with them. It will give you life, I promise that. And so as I invite the praise team, can I actually invite us to take a moment to really pray and pause and examine ourselves, whether it be for your own rhythm of life, like how's hospitality for you? Or for some of us, there might be a particular person or people that we're considering, like the married couples at our church or the singles at our church, the collegians at our church, a co-worker, whoever you feel like God's pressing your heart. Can I just invite us to pause, to take a moment, and to really just, the Spirit move, giving space for the Spirit to move and to see what are some steps I can even do to show love. Maybe it's too big for us to grab a meal with them, but at least saying hi or if we're already at the hello level, inviting them. I have yet to hear someone say no to a meal. And so why don't we take a moment to pause to really have a conversation with the Lord, and then afterwards I'll close this in prayer, so let's pray.